Hello, and welcome to Better Sex. I'm your host, Matthew Chambers. Each episode, I aim to have conversations with culturally and spiritually engaging guests. Some you'll know, and some you won't. Some you'll agree with, and some you won't. But hopefully all of us will come away challenged. Hopefully all of us will come away a little bit wiser. Hopefully we'll seek and find. Maybe a more empathetic view of humanity, or a more expansive view of spirituality, perhaps even a deeper view of how to navigate the life we've been given. I'm still learning my way around this whole podcast business, so please bear with me as I figure out microphones and sound and levels and making sure the Wi-Fi works properly the entire time. These conversations are absolutely worth it. I promise. Episode 5 of Better Sex, I'm chatting with Zach Lind. Zach is a founding member and drummer for the band Jimmy Eat World, if you couldn't tell already. Zach and I connected earlier this year in the midst of their world tour being canceled as a result of the devastating COVID-19 pandemic. He's a husband, dad, Arizona native, thinker, and incredibly talented artist. Over the years, Zach and his bandmates have experienced all the highs and all the lows of rock band life and have come through with a depth and perspective you don't hear much about in the noisy artist space unless you really know where to find it. Our discussion today covers a lot of ground, from ableism to politics to how their biggest hit, The Middle, happened as a result of the 9-11 tragedy. We talk about the grief of missing out on sharing their new record on tour, and in true Zach Lynn style, he has some tough words for some other bands and events who haven't shown much wisdom in choosing safety and caution over the allure of performing live. Another area we dive into is the struggle of spiritual journeys and how beliefs evolve over time as we mature and grow. Zach shares a little bit about the Enneagram and how that's helped him navigate not only creating better music with his Jimmy Eat World bandmates, but life in general. You know, sometimes it's easy to see particular artists via a specific lens, but I find Zach to be incredibly genuine, kind, passionate, and dedicated to leaving this world better than when he got here. I'm very grateful for the candidness of this episode, and I hope after you listen, you will be too. We've got a lot of ground to cover over the next hour, so please sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy Better Sex. Zach Lynn, you ready to jump into it? You ready to yeah, let's do it. You ready to go? All right. Uh, well, first off, thanks for joining me today. Uh, it's been interesting in 2020, some of the random people that I've encountered and connected with, uh, over the past few months, and you are one of those people. So it's, uh, we've talked by text message and phone a couple times, but the first time we've looked at each other via a screen. So, Hey, it's great to, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I think, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, um, my cousin Colleen shared a video that you made about ableism, about, yeah. you know, defending Trump and defending, you know, like I totally agreed to everything with everything you said and, um, felt that it was a really important point that, you know, 
is easy to get lost when we want to take, you know, pot shots at the person that is sort of the embodiment of everything that we think is wrong with America. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and I really thought that that was a, I know I saw that. I was like, man, this dude is, this dude knows what's up in this political climate. And, and, and of course this episode is going to run like the Wednesday before the big election. Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting is we've sort of gotten lost in this idea of it's okay to vehemently dislike or disagree with, I mean, literally somebody's entire perspective on something um, and still defend their uh, humanity. And, you know, I think if if that video feels like years away now or years ago now, but I mean, it was really only a couple months, I guess. Um, But what's fascinating to me about that whole idea is when, when that whole thing happened, I think there was this, it was a day where Trump had gone to speak to a branch of the military, like a graduating class. And there was a lot of controversy around it in general, but it was this thing where he's walking down this ramp. I think, I think that's what spurred the whole thing. He's walking down this ramp and the follow-up to that short walk down the ramp where I guess people said he struggled or he wasn't, he didn't have great balance. There was something wrong. Like he, he couldn't handle it quickly. And I was just thinking, you know, if the guy has issues walking down a ramp, if there's a health issue causing something underlying, why do we live in a country where there's even a question about, should we reveal this thing? Should we hide it? We can't let anybody know that there's a health issue here. You know, and for me as a dad to a child with significant disability, where I, I, my son can't hide any of his disability. I mean, if you look at him from far away, he might look quote unquote typical, but if you get anywhere near him, if you he he can't stand up, he can't walk. He 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 is profoundly disabled uh, cognitively and and in his entire body. It's there's a lot of broken things, and and I just I'm it makes me so sad even to this day as we're talking about this that we don't live in a country yet where people's health issues are not just a part of their story. Like it's something we feel like we have to hide or we have to cover up or put a spin on it so that it seems better than it is. So anyway, I mean, and again, you could disagree with, you know, everything Trump stands for and still defend his humanity. And I, I don't care who's in office. I don't care who the person is. I will always do that because I, you know, I want the same for my son. It's sort of that with the Christian golden rule principle of, you know, doing unto others. And I, you know, I'll disagree with him all day. However, I, I mean, why would I ever disagree? Like, it's okay. If you're struggling in this particular area, it's okay. You know, that's right. part, of, part of who you are. And it's part of your story. So um, the idea that like, hey, we can disagree with this person, but also point out the fact that wouldn't it be a nicer society? Wouldn't it be a better world to live in when, um, when, if you have some sort of limitation, it isn't viewed as weakness. And so like when you articulated that video, it's, um, it gave me something to think about that I wasn't really thinking about already. And even I sort of want to consider myself someone who is aware of ableism and um, Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, we're going to look at people and judge them based on what we view as these, these sort of, you know, like a weakness rather than um, just a limitation or whatever. And uh, 
you know, it, it's, it's like when I, it, it just sort of caught me off guard, but then it was like nothing about what you said, you know, when I really sat back and thought about it was like, that's so on the money. And it's really, it's a really important thing because in the end, even though, you know, Trump is not going to give anyone that kind of benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't. And, uh, and I don't know, I, I thought it was, it, it was something that like just immediately I knew, okay, regardless of whatever, cause I didn't even know who you were at that point. And right, I was like, right, regardless right. of whatever this guy's background is, there's something interesting here because he's, he's holding two things at the same time, right? Like two things can be true at the same time. Sure. And it, seems like, it seems like that's a skill that is really hard for people to, uh, <laughs> to, to grab onto yeah. these days. Well, it's, you know, it's hard for me to do. I mean, I, I recognize that, you know, and I think what's interesting is, Several years ago, when Trump was running the first time, uh, there was that moment with the the reporter um, who had that a, a genetic disorder. Um, and it was interesting. I, I hadn't seen this clip, but my own kids came to me and said, Dad, have you seen this YouTube video? Like my children. Um, and I think that they recognized it because they have a sibling with a disability. I don't know. And there is... I, whenever I hear people go say things like, well, both sides do it. I hate that with the fire of a thousand suns because for much of the time, I don't agree, but there is a moment where I think that that's true. Um, I think that the vast majority of us in the United States and, and maybe globally, but I, I mean, this is my world, this is my nation. So I can't, I can't speak for somewhere where I don't live, but for here, systemically, societally, we don't see all people as having a seat at the table. And historically that's sort of been a significant part of our downfall um, over, over the years, over the generations. And I think it's so easy for us. In fact, I think the thing where with Trump walking down the ramp was brought to everyone's attention because there's a group of of Republicans who started this thing called the Lincoln Project and they brought it to light. And it was like, we're trying to find every little thing that we can do to knock somebody down. And I was like, there's a million legitimate reasons or things that you could say or arguments that you could make about this particular candidate in this particular time. But someone's health issues are not a reason to ever, ever say, you don't belong here. You don't deserve a seat at the table. We're not going to listen to what you have to say. And, you know, I, I personally, I don't hold the kind of power where I can just go dismantle that and remake it in a nation but if every once in a while, maybe, in fact, I have a cousin who is a staunch Trump supporter. And I remember one day I called something out and he said, yeah, but would you defend Trump in this particular way? And it was nice to be able to send him a link to this video and go, actually, yeah. I, I did. Like, cause yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that it's right. I don't think that it's fair. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think that it's um, the right uh, posture or I, I don't, I think it's void of integrity to, you know, blast somebody for, you know, an addiction uh, or mental illness or, you know, a, a physical or genetic infirmity. I just don't I don't think that that should have any place in our society. Um, in fact, I think the opposite is true. I think that we should, as a society, invest in in those people and yeah. show them, hey, 
this is a safe place for you. We're here. We want to cheer you on. We want to see you reach your full potential. Um, you need a you need a less steep ramp to walk down when you're the president of the United States. No problem. Nobody's even going to say anything about it. I want you to reach the bottom of that ramp and feel like you can do it with confidence. You can't walk today. You need a wheelchair. No problem. Not a big deal at all. No, nothing. So I don't know. I don't know what happens um, or how we fix this, but. You know, well, I, it's, it's interesting to look at that. Like the Lincoln Project is ultimately, you know, these guys ran campaigns in the past that, mm-hmm. you know, um, literally made fun of John Kerry's Purple Heart. Right. So, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, yeah. this was before Trump. Right. So this yep. is stuff that happens. You know, this is the same kind of people who, you know. Are, are are putting flyers on the windows in North Carolina because John McCain has a a, a child that is a person of color, mm-hmm. and so these people have done this for a long time, and it's interesting that um, the you know the Lincoln Project, albeit trying to you know take down Trump, um, but they're they're they come from a Republican conservative political operation. You know, th- these yeah. guys are like heavyweights in that world. So it's, yeah. it's you know, um, even on that end, it's sort of interesting how you look back at sort of the the old, you know, and I don't mean to oversimplify here because I know that, you know, but it's just to me, you don't see Biden, um, you know, or his campaign uh, going down that road in a way that the like existing Republican, even though they're anti-Trump, they're still Republicans and they're still using the same kinds of playbooks that they've used forever. Well, and and honestly, to that end, this is my biggest hang up with politics. And it's interesting because I was trying to figure out um, what I was going to do. Like, who do I interview the week of the election? Because I typically drop these on Wednesday, you know, and the election's on Tuesday. And I was like, well, who the hell am I going to talk to that I'll play the day after the election? So I'm just writing. I'm going to just write a piece. And I'm going to say it myself. I'm going to just come on the day after the election and say, look, here's my take on things. And it'll be simple. It'll be to the point. But, you know, as we're leading up to all these things, look, I have no qualms about sort of the mess messiness of politics. I get it. It's it's like it's a blood sport in some ways. I wish it weren't. I hope maybe we can evolve to the point where it's not as much so in the future. But conservatives, liberals, far left, far right. Like I get the game. I understand that part. What I would really like to see, and this is for Lincoln Project, this is for any sort of more activist minded groups on either side of anything. I would really just love for us all to kind of come to a truce about the things that we're not going to drag people for anymore. And I really would like to stop seeing um, uh, minorities. I would like to stop seeing immigration populations uh, being dragged through the mud all the time. I would like to see people with disabilities seen or unseen, uh, people with illness, disability. I just, it's a bully mentality of we're trying to show dominance and the way that we dominate is we dominate those we perceive as weaker than we are. And if you don't hold the person you, you believe in accountable, then we've definitely already lost, you know? And, and, and I, I talk about this all the time with folks where it's like, look, I may vote for a particular candidate, but you better damn well believe that if they step into a particular area that I know is the wrong way to go, I will call them out. And I think, I think we've sort of reached this point in American politics. And this may be why, um, 
sort of that that addiction to bullying people we perceive as weaker is so prevalent is um, because we don't call out our people. And I honestly think that if if certain folks had stood up to Trump in a particular way, you know, when I hear people say things like, well, I'm not voting for a pastor, I'm voting for a president. And it's like, yeah, but so he's you still shouldn't bully people you perceive as weaker. And I don't I don't really care who you are. And honestly, if the guy running right now that I wasn't voting for was a liberal Democrat, I would say the same thing because I just don't think it has any place in our society, period, regardless of who you are, where you're from, what your background is. Uh, or what your political stance is. And so, but again, all the way back to the beginning, it's so interesting what has connected people this year for me personally. And I'm, I'm fascinated by, I mean, I've been introduced to people this year that I never figured I would ever meet um, just because the circumstances of conversations like the one you and I are having right now. And anyway, but uh, we can come back around to that in a little bit. Cause I got more questions on it, but you guys like, so you, you're the drummer for Jimmy Eat World. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have been around since what, the early 90s together? Yeah, so we started in 93. Uh, we started playing in my parents' garage in 93. Nice. And yeah, at the toward the end of 93. So we started rehearsing and um, kind of writing songs mm-hmm. in 93. And then we played our first show in early 94, I believe. And then... You're all from yeah. Arizona, all from Arizona yeah. together. We're all from Arizona. Um, Jim, uh, the singer and guitar player, and I went to preschool together. So we've known each wow. other since we were three. Wow. And uh, and um, Tom and Rick, they mm-hmm. met in junior, junior high. And then I started a band with Tom in high school. And then uh, I had known Jim, grew up with Jim, and he and I would play music together all the time. But we never were like in a band together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Tom and I were in a band in high school and then that band kind of disintegrated and he and I were like, well, let's see if we can like get something going, some other, some other thing. So, um, I knew Jim was playing in another band, but I was like, man, let's, let's, it would be cool to get Jim and Tom together. And, yeah. uh, and so we did that. And then, um, yeah, it just kind of like clicked and we got along and it just, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I guess arguably the song the middle is like the most well-known which it's always funny to me it's like how do certain songs kind of just hit with with fans and they just become the thing but if you go to like spotify i mean you're looking at they always put your top five most streamed songs and you're looking at you know almost 400 million (laughs) streams on a song like that which is amazing because how long ago did that come out so that came out in 2001 and, yeah. um, yeah, I think when, uh, you know, it's interesting cause we wrote that album, uh, the, the album that the middle came out on, um, we wrote that album in a situation where we had just been dropped from our, uh, from Capitol records, which was our mm. first record company that we'd done a, a major label deal with. And so we thought our idea was, Hey, we're free now and we can let's, let's save up some money and make a record. But when you're, when you're making an album, um, kind of on your own without, we didn't have a manager at the time. So we, we got dropped, we fired our manager and we were kind of just like going, you know, moving forward on our own. And, um, the first step was was before that was even sexy. Like, 
people do that all the time now, but this was even before that. Well, yeah, because sometimes, you know, like depending on your mentality as a band back then, if you got dropped, it was sort of like, you know, depending on your circumstances, it would be just a death blow, right? Mm -hmm. You'd be like, oh, we lose all the support and we lose all of the benefits that come with being on a label. Yeah. But, you know, we were friends with a lot of bands and um, touring with a bunch of bands that didn't have that support. Like Mm -hmm. they didn't, they weren't on major labels. So for us, like it was it didn't seem like a, uh, it didn't seem like this death blow to us. We sort of looked at it as an opportunity. And mm-hmm. so, um, we ended up making bleed American totally on our own, which yeah. the middle was on it. But, but when, but when we started like working on that song, it was like, man, this, there's something about this song that just feels really easy and, um, catchy. And, um, you know, it definitely, it definitely showed itself early, but you don't know what, you know, because it, in order to have a hit like the middle, you need to have all of the infrastructure of having a major at the time you needed a major label. You needed a, a really good manager that could take advantage yeah. of all whatever momentum was there. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, it was kind of, kind of everything sort of lined up perfectly for it. Well, and even having a record called Bleed American in 2001, you know, the same year that you know, nine eleven happens. I mean, there was probably some significance attached to that over time. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, we titled the record that before nine eleven, <laughs> right, and then, right. Um, and then when the record came out, uh, it was funny because the first single on that record was, was the song bleed American, which is the mm. first song the album. And, um, it was actually going up the charts pretty quickly on alternative radio. And as soon as nine 11 happened, radio stations just kind of freaked out and anything that sort of sparked uh, ambiguity or, you know, you know, bleed American wasn't in any way like an anti-American song, but um, it just sort of sounded, you know, it's, it's, it sounds in some way violent and then also American. So so that, that, that song just literally got dropped, you know, Mm. from the, from the radio playlist. And so what was interesting about that is the next single was the middle. So we had to transition. Um, we had to, we changed the name of the album to Jimmy Eat world, which we'd already put out a self-titled album. So that was kind of weird, but, um, (laughs) changed the name of the album. And then we, um, and then we went to the middle, we just transitioned right to there. So I don't know, maybe it was a, um, a lot of people looked at it as like a kind of a big deal and a misfortune, but we never really looked at it that way. And it just sort of worked out the way it worked out. It definitely did. Well, skipping forward to this year, you guys released this record last year, 2019, and you already, you went, you toured a little bit with it, I think yeah. in the, in the U S and then this year you were, it was a European tour, right? Yeah, we had tours all over that we we had uh we were supposed to go to the Philippines, we were supposed to go to Manila and then we did Australia, New Zealand, then back to Japan and then Hawaii and then that got canceled and then all of our we had a whole U, uh, Canada tour got canceled, we had a full US tour get canceled, we had European tour. So yeah, all of our touring from March till now is just gone. Like what so what what was that like just when you're looking at this going, holy shit, this thing is getting big. Um, well, I mean, it was super disheartening because mm-hmm. I think what well, at the beginning we're like, okay, let's just, you know, let's hunker down for a few months and get through it. And then, you know, and slowly mm-hmm. as you see our, 
just lack of response as a country and no one really taking it seriously. And then um, you start to see like, oh, this is not going to happen for a while. Right. So yeah. we, we kind of realized that our album that we put out in October, that album over, like there's no mm. touring on that. And even when we do come back, like it's, it's will be so far removed from 2019 that it makes no sense to come back and then like, Oh, Hey, okay. We're going to start touring on surviving <laughs> again. And um, so in our minds, it was sort of like the combination of this album is not going to get its album cycle. Right. And then the other side of that coin is we just got done making an album and putting it out. And there's a sort of like creative exhaustion that you have when you're yeah. done. And for us, we've always benefited from that. You know, we kind of more or less without even really trying or scheduling it, we put out albums like every three years. So we put out an album and then we tour for a year and a mm -hmm. half and then we start thinking about the next album. And that that cycle is really important because when you're done making an album, you're totally done creatively. Like yeah. you don't you're you're kind of like at least for us we're total we're not in the mindset of making music well yeah our, i mean it's, i guess you're supposed to just leave it out like you just put it all out there yeah and our mindset goes from when we release the album right and then our mindset goes to okay we're executing performances on tour so like our whole mindset changes so mm -hmm. we're like okay, we're just it, it becomes more of like a performance based and then even just doing just touring and making sure the train stays on the tracks and making sure your yeah. shows are good. Like that requires a focus and an attention that it is creative work, but it's not writing material. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of creative work, but it's, it gives, it gives you the space away from making an album. And then when you're done touring, your, your brain starts to say, Oh man, I'm really sick of touring. <laughs> it would be great to get in the studio and make an album. And so yeah. for us, for us, that whole cycle gets like upended. So now we're like, we know we need to make an album. You know, we know at some point we need to make new music, but it's like emotionally and uh, just mentally our, our headspace is not there yet. And I think we're being honest with ourselves. Like mm -hmm. if we wanted to force it right now, we could. So, um, but, um, I don't think anything would like, I don't think that would be a, our best creative work. So yeah. you know, obviously, obviously there's, you know, this, these are small problems, but just from the context of the band, like, you know, people are losing their jobs and people are, you know, there's just so much awful stuff going on. Um, so I think we're all kind of taking it in stride, but it's like, but it is something that I think we had to kind of like grieve in a way of like losing well, that opportunity. And I, I, you know, I, even in the process of like wanting to write, write, you know, produce a new record, there's still a lot of processing yet to do for even what's happening right now, yeah. you know? And like you said, you could definitely force it. Um, but I imagine what, what will, I mean, you guys are, you guys are grown men. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You know, you know how you work creatively and you know how you work together. And um, I think it will be really interesting, interesting to see kind of, what themes evolve out of not only the grieving process of sort of losing that whole part of yourselves in, in this year, but, you know, kind of even observing what's happening in the world and how that comes out in the, in the next record. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, and that's something I've learned over time because uh, I'm very much like I'm an Enneagram eight. Like I want to get after it. I want to do it. You know, let's mm -hmm. go. Do it. I want to I want to 
like coach and lead my bandmates into like doing what's necessary right now. Yeah. And right now what's necessary is to make an album. Right. And I think like me 10 years ago would be like hammering the guys. Like we got to make a new album. We've got to make a new album. And like, <laughs> and, and, you know, it took me a minute to realize that like the, the, you know, uh, the creative mindset, um, the worst thing for it is someone chirping, in your ear, like, okay, we got to hurry. we got to hurry. And, um, so I think right now we're just sort of like being patient and focusing on, you know, certain things that we can do and, um, and kind of waiting for that, waiting for that time to feel right when we know we're going to have to start, you know, getting serious about just starting the process again. Right. But I think you have to be mentally there and ready for it because mm-hmm. it is such a daunting thing. And, and for us, even just like a logistical piece of all of it is, um, you know, for the last several albums, we've, we've sort of changed the way that we do our record deals with, with the okay. companies that we work with. So we license, we own all the masters of the last mm-hmm. three albums and we license them. Nice. The company. So, but the, but the, you know, the hurdle that that, creates is we we have to pay for the making of our albums and Mm. you know over time what we would normally do is we would you know stash money away as we tour for a year and a half and and kind of build up a a a savings and then we know we can go into making an album responsibly with like having that you know money put away and then it's like now all of that is gone (laughs) and so we have to figure out like you know how so how are we going to do this how is it going to change the way we operate and so all of that stuff starts to kind of weigh on you and it's sort of right now i think we're just being trying to be patient with ourselves and like just kind of see where where this whole thing takes us and i think to your point like yeah i think you need to you're like right now i don't think anyone needs like um a rushed surfacey take on a pandemic, right? Like you need yeah. to, you really want to be like, if you're going to even process this on a, even on a personal level, I think for us, it's like, all we can do is like, Hey, we'll be patient and be supportive and, uh, yeah. you know, encourage, encouraging. Was the, you guys did the NPR tiny desk. Mm-hmm. I think in February is when that came out. Was that like your last, like performance? I think that's one of the last performances we did. I think we ended up going, uh, I think we, we went somewhere and did something after that, but it was, yeah, definitely one of the last, like, you know, it's definitely one of the last sort of uh, promo type things that we did. Hmm. Gosh, what a year. Oh my God. Yeah. Are there thoughts about like, are you guys going to have to do like, you can't just go, we're pushing the tour to 2021, like just as an automatic like, what do you, how are you guys even thinking about that? I think there are certain events that we had scheduled for last summer that got pushed to this come this coming summer, um, okay. summer 2021, but you know, it's just, it's hard to know. It's hard to know mm-hmm. how people are going to be feeling then. Um, you know, I'm honestly kind of concerned about, um, the logistics of touring and, yeah. um, you know, uh, just it's, it, it feels like there's a lot of hurdles. Um, just thinking about living on a tour bus with, um, I mean, the way we normally tour, uh, is we have a tour bus and, um, about 75% of the time it's us and our crew all on one bus. Wow. Um, so 
like I'm thinking, okay, so you're all on one bus. Like, let's say one person gets uh, infected um, and they get on the bus. I mean, it's game over. Yeah, it's over. You know? Yeah. Wow. So how do you logistically how does touring look you know mm-hmm. and and then even beyond that it's like how do people even feel about going to concerts and um you know it's like the concert is like the thing where you go to where you kind of want to lose your mind and you want to like not worry about real life and you don't want to you know think about um you know all the you're paying good money to go see a band perform and you kind of just want to lose yourself in that performance and yeah hard to do that when you're like and you're kind of close to me and I'm kind of freaked out and, you know, like, you know, yeah. like you're, you're constantly thinking about the yeah. danger of what you're doing and it takes you out of the experience. So it's like, you know, all of those things I think are something that we're thinking about. And, um, you know, and, and then from a band perspective, it's like when you get the green light to go on tour and go, to, go, you know, is that even, even then, is it like responsible? Like, are you caring about your fans? Um, and, uh, you know, I see bands like that played the Sturgis rally and it just, it makes mm. me so livid, so livid because like those bands just don't care about those people going, yeah. you're, you're literally the Pied Piper bringing people together and putting them in harm's way. And it's was like, that, that big, that was that big, like motorcycle rally thing. That yeah. Happened? So in Sturgis, there was a huge motorcycle rally and I get like the rallies happening, whether the bands play or not, but right. uh, you know, uh, I think the singer from smash mouth got on stage and was like, you know, F this Corona stuff. Like, let's just have <laughs> fun, you know? And it's like, dude, um, it, you can literally see like the, 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 the graph of the, of the cases in the Midwest. Like you can, he said that on August 16th and it's like the Midwest and mm-hmm. South Dakota and North Dakota are spiking like crazy ever since then. So, yep. Yep. you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, from, from our perspective, that's the last thing we'd want to do or, you know, um, compromise is, you know, when we're bringing our fans together for a concert, um, we're like, we're ultimately responsible because when you dangle like any, like you dangle, Oh, Hey, there's a concert. People are going to start like making decisions, maybe not based on their head. And they're going to be like, Oh, I really want to see that band play. I'm going to go, you know? And it's like, no, but maybe you shouldn't come because maybe it's not safe. And maybe as a band, we should preempt all of that by saying we're not going to tour yet. You know? Yeah. And such huge, like philosophical decisions too. I mean, that like, that's it's a it's been such a wild year where I think there are people who like you're talking about the guy from Smash Mouth at Sturgis. It's like you there are people that just who just refuse to take that sort of mantle of leadership or to be seen as somebody who you have an opportunity to lead responsibly in a particular moment. And instead of that, you like buy the hype of the moment and become part of the problem. And so I think it's been an interesting year just to watch different people with different platforms and how they, how they manage those platforms in the middle of a crisis. And there's been some really amazing things, but there's also been some really tragic things. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's super tragic. You know, it's, um, you know, it's funny. No one talks about this very much, but like, look at Canada, right. They're literally like our Mm -hmm. neighbor and they're, 
handling of the virus and the outcomes that they're experiencing are so wildly different than ours. And why, and like, why is that? Right. And I think that like the lack of leadership is what creates confusion. And Mm -hmm. it, it, it almost like to me, the idea of like, you're saying this is such a, you know, these are such big questions and they are, but they've been made to be big questions by bad leadership because like, in reality, the question is like, you know, everyone should be wearing a mask and there shouldn't be large gatherings anywhere. But like the president of the United States is not abiding by that and totally not not following those guidelines. Right. So what happens is, is that widens the scope yeah. of the debate. Right. It, it, it creates a wider spectrum with which like, you know, um, air quotes, you know, reasonable adults can agree right? <laughs> right, or right. reasonable adults can, can disagree on, on it. And, and to me, it's like, that's not reasonable just because someone is doing something um, who happens to be the president of the United States doesn't mean that like that should be considered like a norm on one side of the debate. And so, um, you know, that's just, it's sort of like for me as a, as a music, touring musician, and not seeing any like this, like not seeing any end in sight. Yeah. Um, it's really frustrating because like he's holding events that are putting people at risk and we're sitting here waiting. And it's you your know? livelihood. Like it's your damn livelihood. And yeah, Americans, we struggle to value things which are not personal to us. And if something doesn't immediately and personally affect us, we tend to not value it. And, you know, so I think a lot of people and Sturgis, not to keep harping on Sturgis, but the whole idea of, you know, none of those people felt like it, it affected them. So, you know, now I'm, I imagine the story is very different and I, I'm, I, I'm sure that there's been a lot of death that's come out of that as well, uh, along with, you know, significant illness and same for here in our area. I mean, we have people, I have a friend, I read about on Facebook the other day who she's like in her early twenties and she got it and she's technically quote unquote recovered. Um, but she's like, I went out to mow the grass the other day and I, I couldn't even breathe. I, yeah. I, I'm still struggling. So I think for Americans, and this really goes back to the conversation we had at the very beginning of, you know, looking at people and kind of not valuing those in a struggle or those that who we perceive as weaker than we are. And really, I think it's just a matter of finding a way to value each other and going, I'm going to do this on behalf of someone else. And enough of, if enough of us did this on behalf of someone else, whether or not we think that it will ever affect us, I think you and I would probably be having a very different conversation right now. Um, yeah. Otherwise. And yeah, absolutely. And, and the, 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 the dark side of all of this is that, you know, if you're someone in leadership, like the lady you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, who's just going rogue or not going rogue, but like going on a personal page and, and kind of being real, yeah, that, that invites threats. Like, you know, yeah. Anthony, you know, yeah. you can't even go on like a jog without security detail. And it's, it's like, wild. that's, what's wild to me is like, you know, so much of what we end up debating about and so much of the, the, conflicts that you see even like on your Facebook feed, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we're debating things that other countries aren't debating. And um yeah, you look at yeah. the outcome, if you just look at the outcome, right? If you look at our outcome compared to their outcomes, like it's like uh it couldn't be more different, 
you know, and it, you know, people are debating on whether or not face face masks work. Right. And I'm like, look at the numbers in Japan. Right. They wear face masks and no one's arguing about like if they work or not. Right. And so I, I just feel like it's it's we're living in this weird world where um, where where things that are not really rational debates are being um validated and then and then we're we're wasting so much time arguing about things that aren't really arguments you know they're yeah. they're they're just uh it's sidetracking us all from like just the obvious science of it all yeah and um and it's like you know um that's what i've been thinking about a lot during this pandemic because i think a lot of what's going on is the sort of anti-science uh, mentality. It's like this merging of anti-science that, um, as a kid growing up in a really conservative Baptist, uh, upbringing, like was something that I've had to unlearn. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then like it, it, it bleeds right into, um, it bleeds right into this whole pandemic thing. And it sets up nicely for people who want to just sort of like deny, reality because they've been sort of like that's kind of part of at least growing up i feel like uh, you know coming from my childhood into my adulthood i've had to unlearn so many of the things and the assumptions that i was told or taught and uh that's hard work you know it sucks and it's not fun but like i feel like you know um that sort of leaves everyone in this headspace of you know, well, you know, I'm just going to pray and God's going to protect me and I don't need to wear a mask. You know, like, the, yeah, I, I want to talk about sort of the process of unlearning and sort of the, the, your journey to get where you are right now. But I'm even thinking as you're talking about how I, I think when our son Jude was seven and we take him every six months to Cincinnati. So he sees his neurologist in Cincinnati, Ohio at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. We've been doing this since he was like, I think, 18 months. Um, and now he's 14. So we've been I mean, it's in our blood now, like that. I could do that drive in my sleep. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember I remember the year or the visit, not the year, the visit. When we went in, I think he was seven years old and we were getting ready to start a, a a really interesting clinical trial that we had been watching since he was a baby and we were finally eligible for this clinical trial, but I'll never forget being in that um, exam room and the neurologist, the neurology team coming in and going, okay, so just so you know, and he's seven and he has a rare genetic disorder. And they said, this visit today essentially marks the end of all of our knowledge of this disorder. So for the rest of Jude's care in his life, We'll just be sort of figuring it out as we go. You know, we know a lot, but this is the end of what we know. And so ever since then, I mean, for the next seven, you know, the past seven years now, we've just been filling it out as we go. And some things that we've tried work and some things aren't as effective. And so coming into this year, it really wasn't any big deal for us to go, but they don't have a bunch of answers, you know, like, because it was just science doesn't always have answers. And even the answers that science has generally don't fit very easily on a clever meme or on a bumper sticker or in a short video. It's complicated. It's not always very easy. And what you know today may be different tomorrow. And you just have to kind of feel your way along. But especially when you're dealing with a a, a virus like this. And so you talk about unlearning, you know, that particular day, seven years ago, 
I was in the midst of a deconstruction myself spiritually, uh, but where the science was concerned, we walked out of there going, oh, oh, okay, well, what do we, what do we do now? But we've, you've had to, you just have to learn it again. And so that's what we've done. So coming into this year, like it hasn't been weird for us, you know, yeah. and there's not answers just because we go, okay, well, here's the information we have today. So let's do the best with what, what we know right now. And tomorrow, if it's different, we'll adjust tomorrow. And yeah, and I, I, that's not a big deal to me. It doesn't make me upset. I'm not mad at Dr. Fauci or whoever, whoever happens to, you know, be the one that releases particular. If yesterday they said this and today they came out and said, by the way, we've learned something new. It just, it's not offensive to me. I don't, I'm not upset with them because I don't think that, I don't think having all the answers all the time is the point. And I also think that that's an impossible standard to try to force. So, well, yeah. well, right. And I think, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is, is that, um, you know, like any adult, any adult would sort of understand is it's okay mm-hmm. to say that you were wrong at one point. Yeah. And th- that is not a discredit yep. to you. If anything, not at all, you know, like, um, if anything, I think that's a, sh- a sign. I mean, this kind of goes back to what, what the idea of strength means, you know, and along with sort of like the, the, the ableism conversation, it's um, being able to admit that you were wrong is a strength, not a weakness. Yeah. And so if, you know, and, and the, but the problem is, is that when we are adversarial out of the gate mm-hmm. with people who are leaders in science, because science is threatening uh, our world science is a threat to our worldview, right? Then it's like, well, when we have an opportunity to discredit someone because they <laughs> changed their mind, we're going to take it. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is like, there's a fundamental ground in America that mm-hmm. other countries don't deal with as much. I mean, every, every country has to deal with it a little bit, but there's something going on in the U S that's unique um, in the, in, in, in the way that, um, the, so many people and, and the way they view the world is based on, uh, a bias that science isn't really the thing to follow. And that there's this weird dichotomy to them where there's this weird thing where they can't hold their faith and their and science together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of like a a unique American sickness that we have. And it's like, you know, and I think it, it, it stems from so many things that I, I, I view, you know, it's like, you know, so much of the Christian residue is so much like, you know, the, like the, the idea of inerrancy Mm -hmm. is, I think relevant to this, like if there are any mistakes in the Bible, then it throw the whole thing and it's worthless. Right. And to me, my feeling is like, well, of course there's mistakes in the Bible. And I think that actually makes it better. And, Mm -hmm. um, the idea that like we can have two things happening at the same time and hold them together and maybe allow science to sharpen our worldview and it doesn't need to discredit God or your, your faith or whatever you, whatever your sort of spiritual perspective is. But we are not like as a country in general, we're not able to like have that conversation. Some Mm. people are, but I think just like um, the majority of the country is sort of being weighed down by this. It's sort of like, to me, it sort of feels like a sickness. I remember when I was young and you and I grew up very similarly you sort of look at spiritual leaders or um, religious leaders, political leaders, and 
you kind of imagine these people as people who hold the answers mm-hmm. uh, or the answer singular. Um, but then as you get older and you kind of even watch, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we watch how we evolve in our perspectives on things, because that's a natural human thing. If you are open to learning and growing, then that's what's going to happen. And what I thought 20 years ago or 10 years ago, and in some cases last year, five years, three years, six months, I I think differently now than I did, or I believe differently now, because everything we mature and we evolve in the ways in which we uh view and engage with the world around us and the people in it. And when I look out across the spectrum um, and I want to, I want to take this into sort of the, the spiritual journey side, but when I look out across the spectrum of political leaders, law enforcement leaders, um, community organizers, uh, political leaders, pastors, imams, priests, uh, I, I, what I look for in those types of people is I want to know, have you have you evolved over the years? Have you do you see the world differently than you did? Um, what what have you learned along the way that's changed the way in which you view God or in which you um, engage with science or in which how you love your family or you know what have you had to unlearn and relearn? Um, those are the things I'm curious about, and and I you know I definitely. I, I definitely think it's just such an exhausting thing to look out. And when you're hearing people go, well, the scientists are part of this like big conspiracy theory and they're trying to destroy us and they're trying to control us. And it's like, man, I, you know, I think that there are nefarious things that do happen and can happen. Um, but I think it happens right in front of us. I don't think it's something that necessarily always happens in secret and, you know, definitely not where there's lives at stake. And so, you know, I, you and I have talked a little bit um, just back and forth offline about kind of your journey, but it seems like even some of your journey happened. you know, I mean, you've been in this band since you were in high school. So like you've been sort of deconstructing and reconstructing while also being on some level a public figure, mm-hmm. now what has that? And then, of course, along the way, you get married, you have kids. Like, yeah, you know, what has that journey been like for you? Um, it's kind of like been a winding road a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, I, I even now the metaphor that I use is like when you are a kid and you're around um, a group of people that have a worldview and the people who are your friends, your family, mm-hmm. your church, um, like everything, you know, it's like, and then, um, you kind of get like programmed, you have like a software that's running in the background. Yeah. And so, um, I think it's, it's a slow process of figuring out what parts of that software don't work. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it can be kind of a confusing and a painful process, mm-hmm. but, um, as I get more distance from it, I, you know, I kind of have like this, um, like I'm thankful in a way that I feel like, um, you know, I've, I've unlearned some things that I think are really harmful, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like it's okay for people to be gay. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've unlearned that. And right now I can treat people who are gay, um, with, uh, dignity and respect and equality, and I can cheer them on and support them. Right. Sure. Sure. So like that to me is like a sort of obvious one or that, like, mm-hmm. it's okay for women to teach other people. 
it's okay for it's okay for a woman to get up yeah. on a stage and teach men. That's the that's the sadness of it to me. Mm. Is that we are saddling people and kids, especially kids, with all of these things that they're going to have to either unlearn or they're going to grow up and they're going to be essentially oppressors, you know, mm-hmm. or they're not mm-hmm. going to, you know, they're going to, um, you know, they're going to write on Facebook, uh, I love Jesus. So I don't need to wear a mask. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and ultimately to me that, that is the, you know, for me personally, it's just sort of been a long kind of up and down thing. I'm, I'm sort of like, at this point, I'm kind of just like agnostic, right. Um, I'm not sure. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. something that, um, uh, you know, obviously there are different expressions of the Christian faith and journey yeah. that are more like suitable to the things that I've had to unlearn. But then, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's a difficult thing because I, I have, I feel like I have this, uh, overcorrection where I don't want to give my kids anything to unlearn. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes I feel like I'm in a sort of, uh, in my effort to not get them to, un- to not saddle them with any unlearning, I'm, I may be missing out on chances to actually teach them something, you know? I, and I so, feel the same way. Yeah. I, I um, fall into that trap a lot. So it's like, uh, obviously, you know, we can, we do our best and we try to, we try to figure it out. At least I'm not saddling them with what I was saddled with. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like, I wasn't saddled with these things with bad intentions, right? Everyone, you know, involved in the project of bringing up kids in a conservative Baptist church, like they just think they're kicking ass for the Lord and raising kids the way they should be. And, you know, and it's like, um, I get all that. Right. And, um, but, uh, and you can also separate like, okay, they weren't meaning to do me harm. Uh, but it's actually, you know, something that I, I feel was sort of harmful and mm. something I had to deal with and wrestle with. That's maybe the most frustrating thing I'm wrestling with right now is that like all of the unlearning puts you in a footing of he- being hesitant to actually teach your kids something if you don't want to saddle them with something that um, you feel like might get in their way later on in life. Did your bandmates grow up similar to you? Did you guys meet in any sort of religious context or did you meet separate from that? Yeah. So Jim and I went to the kind of grew up in the same church, you know, and Jim, um, I think Jim kind of like just didn't care about any of the teaching stuff and, and sort of (laughs) just kind of floated through and, and, um, you know, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he has sort of always been, uh, I think, um, not to speak for him, but I, I sure, think sure. Generally, generally like non, uh, religious, uh, basically, you know, he just, okay. you know, he's not, um, Tom and Rick were raised in the Mormon church. Okay. And, uh, they both are also basically just like non-religious. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, we've all kind of had our own maybe journeys away from, away from that. It's, it's interesting because we don't talk about it a ton. Mm, I was curious about that. It's not like a major theme that we discussed. Um, Like even subconsciously, do you feel like that has 
the undertones of kind of your journeys individually, but also collectively come out in the music that you write? Because I noticed thematically in a lot of the songs, even some of the songs on the new record, um, you know, there you guys you guys talk about things that matter. I mean, it feels very each song feels very personal. Um, it's not just a song, um, yeah. but it feels like there. And I know. <sighs> I guess, you know, the right answer is that every band would say, well, all the songs are personal, but some songs, you know, you can just say, this is a fun song that I made. And so we, we put this out, but it feels like for you guys, it, it carries a certain weight to it. And so I'm curious where some of that comes from, if it comes from some of the journeys you've been on or, you know, I think, you know, the lyrics are really um, predominantly through, you know, Jim's lens uh, and, um, me, Tom and Rick, uh, aside from being in a role to maybe say, Hey, Jim, you might want to rethink this lyric mm -hmm. or whatever. But the reality of it is that never happens. Uh, you know, we never, um, you know, we've, you know, that's kind of, uh, I think Jim is very, uh, very super smart guy mm -hmm. and very intentional. And I think has a high standard for what he commits to and uh, lyrically. And, um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of his domain and, um, everyone in the band, uh, supports that and trusts that. And, um, you almost kind of need to ask for them to share like, like what they're like, Hey, let us know what you think about this, you know, because a lot, a lot of the times I think even, um, like I'm the only one in the band that lets the opinions just free flow without even thinking. And all the other guys are very, are, are much more on a guarded footing. And it's, you know, it's good for me because I can learn from them and they can kind of buffer me. And, and, uh, but then I can also kind of stir the pot in a way that sometimes is good because they may not be, they may be thinking some things, but not saying them out loud, or they may not feel like they have the permission, um, or, you know, is that, like, is that like Enneagram eight? Is that part of that? Yeah. So the Enneagram has been super helpful for me and the band because it helps me. Um, it really helps me understand where they're coming from mm -hmm. because that, that for a long time, you know, that, that was sometimes a challenge for me because, mm -hmm. um, but once I started to kind of understand, uh, especially Jim being a five, you know, an eight and five, there's like a thing there that um, it's like an interesting mix. And, um, but, uh, it's been super helpful. Um, but yeah, Jim is a, Jim is a five and it, probably an extremely guarded five, I would say. Um, Rick is a nine, uh, which, um, you know, it's been, it's been, that's been an interesting, uh, learning about that and <laughs> been cool because it totally makes sense. And then I would think, uh, Tom is a, uh, Tom is a six. So that like, even in sort of wrestling through those things has, I would imagine kind of improved the dynamic um, and how you, even if it's just from your side, yeah. how you view the guys, how you interact with the guys create, Absolutely. you know, because as an eight, you see something that you don't like and that you think is wrong mm -hmm. and you want to say, okay, Hey, that's not, that's not right. This is not okay. And I think, um, you know, understanding where we're coming from, understanding, uh, just, you know, uh, whatever we may be struggling through or whatever, um, is really helped me a lot because it's like, as I get older, I'm real, I'm, you know, I, 
I want to be more patient. I want to understand. Okay. And I've learned that like that sort of willingness to, to be patient mm-hmm. and, and, and to, um, give everyone the space to have to be coming from where they're coming from. And, you know, just that little hesitancy that an eight needs before they say something and act or has really paid off for me a lot, I think, in, in understanding and interacting with my bandmates for sure. Yeah. So you guys have toured for an incredibly long time. You've yeah. been making music together for an incredibly long time. Uh, of course, a couple of you have been friends <laughs> essentially since like toddlerhood. Um, yeah. What sticks out to you as as moments where you're just like, like, this is it. Like, this is the this is the this is the, this is one of those moments that like, OK, this is why I do this. This is why I'm in love with this. And I I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. Oh, man. Um, you know, there's certain moments just in performances where you kind of have that, you know, it it, it sucks because when you do something over and over and over like the <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> the, the, the sort of, you know, cause I, I can remember like a distinct feeling that I felt when it was like the first time I had music, like friends in my garage playing songs with other musicians. Mm. Like that was such a crazy, awesome feeling that yeah. was like, Oh my God, that was so much fun. And, um, you know, over time you lose that a little bit because you just do it so much, but then there's like these little glimpses of it sometimes in just the middle of performances. And like, I wouldn't even be able to tell you when those are or when they happen, but those are pretty cool. I think it's just kind of like where, you know, it's that idea of like kind of you're playing and you realize you have this moment of gratitude that you realize, man, this, I like get to play music with my Mm -hmm. best friends for living and these people in the room are enjoying themselves and like there's just some sometimes that moment breaks through and those moments are pretty amazing um Mm. the one moment that sticks out for me uh the most when i think back i think on like our career and whatever is after we made bleed american Mm -hmm. um and while we were making it you know, we were solid, we were actively kind of like slipping little rough mixes to people mm-hmm. in the industry. Cause at the time we didn't have any, at the time we didn't have, you know, a manager or, or um, a label. So we had zero infrastructure, but then we felt like we were making an album that yeah. was like given the right circumstances could, could maybe do really well. And, um, so we started kind of slipping uh, rough mixes to people here and there, and those started getting passed around. And all of a sudden, like in the middle of making it and re- of recording the album, we were getting some serious interest from mm-hmm. label. And so, uh, and then, but before, you know, right around the time when we were finishing up and mixing the album, we ended up hiring a manager, a guy named John Silva, who um, manages, um, he managed Nirvana. He mm. managed, he, he met to this day. He manages the Foo Fighters. He manages the Beastie Boys. So he, um, he, he knows what he's doing a little bit. Yeah. And he, a little he, bit. he managed Sonic Youth. <sighs> yeah. Um, he's managed Beck, Beck, most of Beck's career. He, he currently manages Nine Inch Nails, Queens of the Stone Age, um, Band of Horses. Uh, like, Dude, wow. he, he even manages, like, I think currently he manages Nora Jones. So like, you know, in our world of like rock music, you know, um, there's no better manager in the music industry than John Silva. And mm-hmm. 
we had this opportunity to come and show him, play him the, the mixes. And but what was interesting about that is at the time, John was working with a guy at a management company with a guy named Gary Gersh, who coincidentally was also the president of Capitol Records when we were on Capitol. <laughs> and so we had just gotten out of a relationship with Capitol when like, if we would show up at the, at the label or if we were there at the Capitol records building in Hollywood, like we'd get the sort of David Spade SNL, like, and you are, and Oof. you know, Oof. like who you're here to see who. <laughs> and like, it was like, we'd be in this building and we'd have maybe four connections to people. But then for the most part, like, you know, we would see every other band's posters oh. up on the wall and we'd never see ours. And, Ouch. You know, and, and there's some like reasons for that. You know, there's like sure. looking back now, there's understandably there's some reasons for that, but it doesn't feel good in the moment. Right. No, you, feel like, you feel like you're, you know, a stranger in your own home. Right. Yeah. We felt like that the whole time we were on Capitol. And so we, and then getting dropped and then making an album and, now we're literally in a meeting with Gary Gersh and John Silva playing <laughs> our new songs. And this is the longest we've ever had an interaction with the president of our, 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 of the former president of our old label. Did he know who you were at that point? Yeah, yeah he knew who we were. Okay. And, and, uh, and so they had a really positive response to the music, you know, and they're like, I think they sort of saw like, dude, this, this is, you know, and so we, we basically uh, hired John to be our manager. And he set up all of these meetings with like, we ended up having a bidding war on our album uh, with all these different major labels. Hmm. And, um, and, and so he's like, yeah, we're going to go to New York and we're going to meet like five labels, <laughs> you know? And I was like, that's crazy. Like we're going to fly. Cause we never <laughs> flew on tour. When we were right. on tour. If we did anything with the band, it was always driving our van somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, this was before, tour bus days or anything like that. So there was like this moment where we're flying into New York city and I see the skyline of New York city and I'm in a, I'm in the plane, I'm on the window seat and it's like, there's just a, a gorgeous view. And, you know, you see the twin towers and you're like, I'm just totally blown away. You know, yeah. I can't believe that we're flying to New York to meet with all these other labels when we just went through this experience of like, kind of being lost in the wilderness of, yeah. you know, this, this label that I think just either like a combination of didn't believe that didn't believe in us. And then also we just weren't really even on the radar. Um, and <laughs> so, and then getting to a space where we actually ended up um, coming to an agreement, you know, with a label and, and, but not only that, but like visiting multiple labels, it was just sort of like, <laughs> That moment of flying into New York and seeing the skyline was like this weird, like, damn, like we did it. Like we, we did something that I thought I think is pretty unique in the sense that normally when bands get dropped, it's like, you're, you're done, you're done, you know, yeah. and you, you just kind of like fizzle out. And we, we did the opposite. Like it, it was like hmm. everything from that point in our career has gone you know, and, and, and just that album coming out and doing as well as it did is the reason why we're still doing it now. I mean, if that album didn't have that impact, then, you know, I'd probably be, you know, <laughs> probably, you know, be doing whatever I'm probably going to be doing in a year from now when touring yeah. ever starts. Right. Right. At the risk of having you alienate 
all your favorite bands. Um, like, is there like a song by someone else that for you is like, this is my thing? Probably like for me, where the streets have no name is like that song that just like, yeah. you know, I just like that. That is a special tune and you hear it and it like never gets old. And um, it's true. It's true. There's something about it that's like. um, It's like powerful, but it's also. Uh, like. Very, it's kind of like a is sort of a list. It's like a almost like a spiritual experience type mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the yeah, that to me, um, is just an incredible song. But there's also some other U2 songs that like blow my mind, you know. And um, it's funny because we're I, I'm in this thing called the Indie Drummer Collective, mm-hmm. and it's like during the pandemic, all these drummers started like contacting each other let's start doing drum covers and so um next month there's a u2 theme and i'm doing acrobat oh and, nice. and uh and acrobat the song is so incredible and it's interesting because it's just like this b-side you know uh mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. D- like a deep track and it's but the words are like as timely as ever now um mm-hmm. You, like if you go back and listen to the words of that song, it's like, oh my God, it's like we're living that song right now. Um, and so, uh, you know, and there's a line in that song that's like, I, I would break bread in a church if there was a church that um, c- could receive me. And I just Ooh. thought that's exactly uh, right. that's where I'm at. Well, that's probably a, a, the perfect time to ask you my my final traditional question that I asked on this thing. I, I finish each episode by asking whoever I'm chatting with, like, how do we have better sex? And this, this idea of how do we have better communities? How do we, how do we improve? It's easy. And this is what I, I'm trying to avoid in these conversations. It's really easy. I think to look out at the world and go, look at how shitty it all is. Like, look at all this broken stuff. And I hate this guy. And I, I don't want to be around these people. And I listen to her and whatever. And I, that's my personality. Like I really, it's easy to do that. It's easy to look out and tell everybody how broken everything is. But what I think is, is so crucial in moments like these is like, yeah, but what do we do about it? Like, how do we have better? So that line from, from Acrobat of, you know, I break bread in a church. Which I'm, I'm going to have to go back and I'll probably post that lyric in the in the page of of the podcast just because yeah. it's such a powerful idea. But like, so if you think about better sex, um, like, how do we have better sex, Zach? Um, the uh, I'll just I, I guess I'll just uh, this is probably going to be a long answer, but do um, it. That's fine. Like, I, I read a book by a guy named Richard Beck. Mm-hmm. It's called Unclean, um, and it's uh, if you haven't read it, it you got to read it. Um, he's a he's a psychology professor in Texas, and he the book is about the the psychology of disgust. You know, there's like a part in the Bible, and I forget where it is, but it's like I require mercy, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And the book kind of rests on that, and it's this idea that you know when um, when Jesus was dealing with people who were considered unclean, mm-hmm. uh, 
the Pharisees would always sort of resort to like, well, you can't interact with those people because they are unclean. And the reason why they would they felt that way is because the psychology of disgust has a it's called a property of negative dominance. Mm -hmm. So if you have something that's unclean and it touches something that's clean, the bottom line was like his 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 sort of final thing. You should read the book, but his final I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out. Yeah. His final observation is basically he makes an argument for an open table. Mm. So he says if you go into a church where they regulate the experience of communion then what that tells you is that they don't have a very uh, high view of the power of communion because they think when someone who's not worthy does communion, it contaminates the process. Mm. But he said, we should actually be looking at it the other way, right? And we should be like, instead of changing people before they come in uh, to invite them in. And to me, I think that like that basic stance would make our communities better. Because it requires sort of um, uh, focusing on things that that matter, mm -hmm. um, and 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 actually, you know, if we if you have a belief or a worldview um, that puts you at odds with someone just because they like person like like a person of the same sex or whatever, or they they are in a political party or whatever, mm -hmm. like. Um, you know, I just feel like th th we're focusing on the wrong things. And if we can just like uh, listen to each other and communicate better and also just have a little bit more faith in that coming together around the idea of like communion um, and and having a, a view of communion that says like this thing, this pro this this. This this cannot be contaminated, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it's not like, like it, it's just to me. I think that that's a really for churches um, specifically. I feel like that idea of an open table, and so that's kind of how I feel like um, in any any sort of community. I look at that that um, dynamic, and I say, well, would this would this group have an open table or not? Mm -hmm. or, or in a church, you can actually just know because they'll, you know, I always love being in the church and the invitation not to take communion because you're not a believer or something. It's like, uh, it just seems so, uh, to me, um, unfortunate. You know, it's interesting hearing you say that. And I, th I think you're exactly right because I think that even that idea of the open table transcends every type of community, every yeah. type of community. And, you know, anybody who's followed my stuff for a while has probably heard me say this, but I even think of that. It's one of the reasons that I get so frustrated with the idea um, of, in, uh, of inclusion uh, and inclusion initiatives, because I feel like even that I always sort of feel like that's like when you're in middle school or whatever. And and that one day at lunch when the cool kids finally go, hey, you can sit with us will make room for you. Yeah. And it's like, you know, in order for inclusion to exist, there has to be some sort of hierarchy who decides who gets a seat at the table or not. But I love the idea of belonging because belonging denotes a seat at the table simply by existence. Yeah, and exactly. It, you're here. So there's a seat for you. And the idea of none of us can be who we're supposed to be without you here. And 
um, you help us be more fully ourselves. And I, that open table concept is something that it, it, it resonates deep just because it's something that we definitely miss. And this goes back around all the way to the beginning of our conversation today of, you know, let's, let's, I really want to get away in our politics, in our faith, um, in our societal exchanges. I want to get away from the idea of picking and choosing who gets a seat at the table based on what we perceive as their strengths and or weaknesses. And uh, it's a good word. I mean, I mean, you know, even like this is modeled by Jesus in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. In the first communion ever, does he disinvite Judas? No, he, he, he includes Judas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if we're going to believe that, like he already knew that Judas was going to betray him, he didn't, Mm -hmm. He didn't say, hey, Judas, get the hell out of here because we got to do this thing real quick and I don't want you contaminating, <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the sacred, yeah. sacred of our, of our thing. And it's like, to me, that's just Jesus sort of like in the story. It's he's not he doesn't sweat that, you know, and um, it's so interesting how. Uh, like. You know, it, it's it's like we have to treat this process with these kid gloves and all this uh, or in some way we're, we're not making it pure. And, and then I just sort of question, well, what's the motive of communion? What's mm-hmm. your, what, what is the, what's the foundational thing here? You mm-hmm. know, is it to feel good about the, the, the guardrails that you've set up around mm-hmm. this thing to mm-hmm. exclude people or, and to make it feel better for you? Or is it to like, um, you know, so that's really, I think kind of cuts to the heart of it. Mm-hmm. So good. Zach Lind, thank you for joining me today. I'm really grateful yeah. for um, your perspective. I, I, I have yet to see you perform live, so I would really appreciate it if you could help end this pandemic quickly for all of us so that selfishly I can just come. And here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll do. I will hold the drum camera <laughs> the entire show, uh, and yeah. I'll, ju- I'll just stand behind you, and I'll hold your drum camera in the show. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be cool. I, I need, I need some more camera. I need, I need some more uh, footage. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again, man. I'm really grateful. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate your, your words and your heart. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys back live again. Thanks a bunch, man. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on and uh, yeah, I, I, I love the podcast. So uh, congrats. I hope you enjoyed this episode of better sex. If you liked or were challenged by what you heard, you can subscribe to the Sex Therapy List on my website, bettersex.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-S-E-C-T-S.com. You can follow us on all social platforms on the handle. And please like and share this episode with anyone you think would appreciate the conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Matthew Chambers. We'll see you next time for another episode of Better Sex. Better Sex.